doing? We are almost packed out in here, man. This is, it looks good. <laughs> We're going to need more seats uh, next Saturday. My name is Roland Nightingale. I'm one of the leaders here at Rethink, and we are glad that you're here to worship and serve with us this morning. Um, if you're new, if you're a visitor, first-timer, uh, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here checking us out. And uh, we would get, we would love to get to know you a little bit more and hear your story, hear more about you, where you came from, what, what you're doing here in Maryville. Uh, so if you could talk with us after the service, we'd appreciate that. We have a guest service area, and we have a gift for you. If you don't like talking to people face-to-face, -face, like some people, <laughs> you can text the number 219-233-2311, and you don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> but you can still let us know that you're here, and we'd appreciate that. And I, I want to take a minute to talk about time, talent, and treasure. You guys are very generous. Uh, we get to do a lot here at Rethink because of your generosity. Not just in Maryville, but around the world. We are affecting lives around the world because of your generosity and uh, your obedience to giving to God. So there are a couple ways that you can do that. You can write a check or give money to the black box in the back, or you can go to the website rethink.cc and click on the Give tab and give that way. And if you're like, Roland, you always talk about money. <laughs> Churches always talk about money. Well, let's talk about your time and your talent as well, because we'll take that. <laughs> so if you are talented, if you are gifted, if you, if you have a talent that you want to use here at this church and be a blessing to others, we'll take it. Um, talk to us. We will find a place for you to get plugged in and to serve and uh, to have purpose in your life and in serving others and being a blessing to others. So it's not just tithing with money. It's your, your time and your talents as well. We appreciate that. You guys have cards on your seats uh, for the Christmas Eve service next week at 4 o'clock. Everybody say 4 o'clock. <laughs> we had to do that this morning. It's 4 o'clock. Um, so pray over these cards. Invite somebody. Pray, pray to invite somebody and bring them here to serve with us next Saturday at 4 o'clock. And we are also not having a service next Sunday morning. So... Spend that time with your family and with God at your house, your families, wherever you're going to be. So we will not have, everyone say, we will not have service next Sunday. <laughs> if you show up, you will not, uh, the doors are going to be locked. So after service today, um, we adopted eight children from the Maryville schools uh, to get them gifts. Um, so we got the gifts back there. We need help wrapping. Speaking of talents, if you can wrap a present, we can use that after the service today. We have some, we're going to have some tables and, and wrap some gifts back there. You, you don't want me doing it, so I'll just get a bag. I'm just going to say this too. God didn't want me to say this, but everybody got their Christmas gifts? I'm going to, the Holy Spirit must have been like, it's funny, Roland, you can say it. Uh, everybody's still shopping. Dude, my brother sent a text out last week like, hey guys, we're cutting back, so don't get our kids any gifts. Like, dude, it's two weeks before Christmas. Everybody got your kid gifts. <laughs> Hopefully we get to see you guys in person. That'll be the real gift. I'm like, what? <laughs> so if you, if you haven't bought gifts, you got two, you got one week now. So get your gifts ready, guys. Mark is talking about prepositions this morning. <laughs> week two of prepositions. So if you like prepositions, lean in. We're glad you're here. So there you go. <laughs> So, and it's repeating, I'll hold it. 
So my name is Mark, and pastor of church. A few years ago, my family and I moved here uh, to Northwest Indiana to plant the church and said, hey, this is what you should do when you've been 30. Why not move to a community you don't know one and to start a church and help people follow Jesus, right? So here's where we're at. So uh, in this process, what we've realized is we usually go slowly through books of the Bible, and then we have seasons where we're like, hey, like obviously Christmas season is going to be about Jesus' birth, right? Uh, Easter is going to be about his death, resurrection, stuff like that. So we had this rhythm and stuff like that. So you're in the season of getting ready for Christmas, which somehow meant we should talk about prepositions. And so we talked about last week, Jesus and prepositions, about how uh, certain people in the, in the story found themselves to be over, over Jesus or even tried to be under Jesus and still missed the boat. So we're going to talk about what's actually going on. And I don't know about you, but I've been like, just sitting down as a pastor for 20 years now, walking through what does it look like uh, to help people find their way to Jesus has been a tricky way, especially since like the mid-90s was easier because people just assumed that the Bible had some authority. Since like early 2000s, they don't care what the Bible has to say. Does that make sense? Like There's a shift in our culture, and if you want to ignore that, you can ignore that, and you'll just be irrelevant. Um, in that whole process. And so I think for part of this process, we just have to learn how to have a conversation. So the way I've had conversations usually is around coffee and napkins, because I like coffee and there's usually napkins there. And if I can't, if I can't explain something on a napkin, then it's way too complex, or I don't understand it. Does that make sense? So what I've been talking through is We've probably all seen this analogy that everybody is trying to get up to the mountain. We're all on the same mountain, just going different paths and stuff like that. We talked about this last week. And so part of this process is just realizing, yeah, we're there, right? This is the, we're on these paths. So you have Islam, you have Buddhism, you have all these other religions. And even within Christianity, how do you get up to the mountain is different. Does that make sense? Yeah. So some of us think it's by faith. Other people would say, no, no, it's by your works. Other people would say it's a little combination of both. Somehow you still have to climb the mountain, all this other stuff. So we talked about this, about how we get up there. And then when, my, when I look at it, I look at it completely differently because I'm just saying, what's the question behind the question? Why do people feel like they need to have religion in the first place? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so because this world is dangerous, all of a sudden now they're afraid. And when people are afraid, they try to control. And when they have control, they try to create systems and say, this is how we actually manipulate it. So in my opinion, we actually start from the very beginning saying that everybody is, is afraid. So I usually flip the mountain upside down, saying this is the starting point, and then we've gone from different ways and avenues from here. And so as we've been working through this, what we're realizing, trying to really trying to figure out is, Jesus, how should I approach this Christmas season? How should I actually approach this Christmas season and saying, how can I actually engage with you? And at one point, Jesus is born. This is, the, this is the mystery of, of Jesus' birth, in my opinion. Jesus is born, but then for 30 years, we don't hear about him, from him, or anything. 90% of Jesus' life is undocumented. We only have right around 10% of his life that's documented, and yet he's the most influential person in human history. Some of us need to take record of this and say, oh, I should probably cut back on my selfies. And you should. Nobody cares about that sandwich you just ate. Right? So, we live in a world that literally documents every stupid thing we've done. Right? Look at me. I'm sitting down having dinner. I don't care about your dinner. Right? Unless it was good. But then call me. You know what I mean? Like, it's my meal. I don't want to see a picture about it. I can't smell it. I can't taste it. I can't, like, 
If it's ice cream, I don't even want to see a picture of it. You didn't invite me, I'm offended. So, um, so all of this to say, Jesus' life is 90% undocumented and there's 90% that's documented. It's only right around 30 years old that he starts to have this movement, but he has no authority. He's, this, this, he's, a, he's a construction worker. He's a, a craftsman. He's a tradesman. He's not really a, a craftsman in the sense that we think about like a, a carpenter working with wood. There's not wood, a lot, a lot of wood in, in Israel. It's more metals and stone masonry that he had to work with. And so he becomes what the, the, the Hebrew word is technon, and where he learns, he just learns how to be a master craftsman in all of this. And so here's this traveling tectone guy who knew the scriptures. He started teaching scriptures, and then all of a sudden he starts gaining momentum there. At one point he tells a parable, and he's talking about these parables about uh, how to, like when somebody, something is lost that's valuable and, they, and people find it. And so he talks about these two sons, and the first son, we talked about this last week, the youngest son goes to, to the father and says, hey, I want my inheritance, which meant that yeah, dad, you're basically dead to me. Now, it would have been gasping, it would have been shocking to the community, the original audience. It's not just the family dynamic, it's the whole village dynamic that happens. Have you guys ever watched a movie with a gasper? You know what I mean? Like somebody's like, oh. and then they start talking about the gasping and the scene and all this. Like my wife, I love her to death, but I can't stand watching movies with her. Because she gasps, and then she tells the characters how stupid they are. Why are you doing this? Like, oh, this? And I'm looking at her like, you know it's a script. You're quiet. Right? And either way, they're just doing it. Shh. Like, it's already done. You, you yelling at them isn't going to change the whole video. Right? So, you can tell her I've said this because I've said it to her a hundred times. So now I just ignore the gasp. Right? So, all that to say, the community would have gasped when they heard one, one the, when Jesus tells this parable. We talked about the younger son, how he just wasted away this inheritance, and he lived, he, he thought he could live over God, or over the Father at one point, and then he recognized he had to live under the Father, and that's all he wanted to do, was to go back and be a servant, right? And so he had the speech prepared, he goes back and he does all this other stuff, and he's like, Father, I'm sending it to you in heaven, and he just has that routine down, he knows when he's going to cry, he knows when he should be emotional and just pause. I mean, we've all had these moments, where you, and if you haven't, have you lived yet? Anyway, so um, you probably should just yeah. So anyway, so you should have these moments where you take a risk, right? Let's put it that way. Well, they, the father throws this huge party, and it's a massive party, and the older son comes in from the field, and he hears the party going on. He talks to the servants, like, "What's going on?" And the servant tells him, "Hey, your younger brother came back," and so he goes to the dad, and the dad's like, "Hey, come on in, like come to the tent, come into the party," but he won't do it. And he starts whining, complaining about, like, Dad, I've done everything you've ever wanted me to do, and you won't even give me a goat to throw a party with my friends. Both sons miss the, 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 the gift that the father is actually offering. The younger son is pretty obvious. The older son only wants to have a relationship with, the, with his dad to get a goat. He's doing all the right things, but he still misses out on the presence. The gift the Father's actually offering here is not a goat. It's not his things. It's his presence. To be in the same area with the sons. And this is the same gift that Jesus is offering to us now. And it's not the same, like, it's not the, it's, it's not the first time God has done this. God has offered this gift of his presence to be with his people since the very beginning. You see this in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and then humanity screws this up. And because of this sin... It's not that God can move away. We move away from God. 
We thought we could do this on our own. We thought we could decide what was evil and right and wrong and all this. And so in this reality, what we see here is, uh, here's our first picture. We're gonna, like I said, I usually draw this on um, napkins. So the, the, the reality that we have usually is that where we put ourselves in the center of the universe and that everything around us is all about us. Everything around us, our jobs, our car, our spouse, our religion, is all how do I actually benefit from this? The clothes that I wear, am I going to look good in these clothes, right? Like, what's the purpose of clothes? To cover your body, right? And be somewhat fashionable, somewhat, right? So the question is, does it look good in you? Does it, or like, does it make you look good? Is a fairly self-centered question. The clothes are doing its purpose. Cover your bits and pieces and go on with life, right? There you go. So if it did its purpose, just do it. Like, why do you ask the question? Well, because we all want to look good, right? What's the purpose of a car? To get you from point A to point B. Who cares how old it is? Who cares if there's duct tape holding something together, right? But in the same regard, you still want to look good in it. And you still want to have it to, to function for you. So whenever I talk about this with students especially, I'm always like, hey, you just need to start looking for the right things. Like at your age, 16, your first car, you probably aren't going to get your brand new car. And if you do, what are you doing? Right? Let's talk about this job that you can somehow make this afford this. So, uh, all, like, all these things we need to start working through. So, even our jobs. When we talk about jobs, and like I, so I teach college career readiness in eighth grade as well, here at Maryville. And so when I talk about this, it's always this self-centered, like, what am I actually going to get out of this? Does that make sense? Instead of, what problem in this world am I going to solve by fulfilling this, this job? And so changing our perspective matters, right? Uh, here in, in our jobs, we just look at our, this, these are pre-pandemic numbers, which by the way, if you didn't know, we had a pandemic, we did, we shut down the world, welcome back to reality. But um, pre-pandemic pre number, numbers, there were 11 million jobs unfilled in America. There's 7 million men specifically from the ages of 25 to 55 who were unwilling to work. Abled bodies, not not the, not the same. I'm not talking about that. Those are really different, right? And these are people who are like, this is not want to work. I'm not even willing to look for jobs anymore because it was all about me, right? I, these jobs are fulfilling, they're underpaying, and all that kind of stuff. And what does that typically do for society when we have the able-bodied people not willing to want to work? It usually slows things down, and then for a few years we have issues like manufacturing supply chain issues and other stuff, right? So it's a trickle-down effect. And I'm not saying it's an easy solution, nor am I saying that you should just go out and get a job just because there's a job. But at some point, you have to recognize, oh, it's not just about me. Yeah. If you're a follower of Jesus, I just have some warning about it. If you're, if you're in that category, you should understand what the scriptures say about this issue, about work. Paul says this to the first the church in Thessalonians. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That seems harsh. Now, what do we always say about the text? Like pulling a verse out of context. You should know the context around it before you're like, oh, yep, I'm going to make this my meme and staple it on everything, right? right. The issue going on in Thessalon Thessalonian church was that they had this group of people who are like, oh, Jesus is coming back. I don't need to work. Jesus is going to come back. The kingdom of heaven is going to happen. Rapture, whatever you want to call it. They call it rapture, but anyway. Um, so, like, oh, he's just going to come back. I don't need to work. I'm just going to sit around and wait for Jesus. And here we are for 2,000 years. 
and so we should get to work. Does that make sense? Uh, Paul talking to, Th to, to Timothy, who's pastoring the church of Ephesus later on in his life, in his first letter to him, says this, it, like in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse uh, 8 or so, he says, uh, basically, if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Wow. The scriptures has a lot to say about people getting to work. Yeah. And it's not just about us. Right? So when we talk about this, like we have to start recognizing that we're not the center of the universe. But here's the here's the challenge within the world the, within the church world. If you've not been if you didn't grow up in church world or church churchianity, and I'm a, what I'm about to say could be a little confusing. Okay, so just pause. If you have questions, buy me a cup of coffee. Let's talk about it, and we'll go from there. Okay, so but it, hopefully if you grew up in churchianity, this will start making sense. Typically, what the churches will say is we need to move out of the center and put God's mission in the center and start working for God. Does that make sense? And it sounds great, but here's the problem. It still misses the mark. It still misses the gift of God. It's the older brother syndrome. When we step in and say God's mission is now the most important thing, you'll, you'll hear churches say this. We'll do anything short of send to win, to win the convert. Unless that means a Sabbath, signs of solitude, and anything like that, right? We're going to work you to death. We're just going to keep working, working. It's God's mission. It's God's mission. It's God's mission, right? And we put the mission of God so important that we actually miss the presence of God. And we now, all of a sudden, like, God's mission, growing his church, filling the seats, doing whatever, is now more important than just simply resting in God's presence. Wow. That's good. And we're, we're constantly, in Western church, we're constantly in this battle, aren't we? Yeah. And you see this. And, and if you didn't grow up in church, you ended awesome. Um, welcome to church. Uh, and so what I would encourage you to do is just simply rest in the presence of God. And when he says, hey, move, you should move. Because it's not just about sitting, right? There is this act, this, this part that we actually have to put into practice. Jesus' last verse to the disciples when he's on the mountain, he says this, now go and make disciples. The mission is important, but it's not the most important thing. And so most of the time in churchianity, we say your job is more so, like you should sacrifice your job and offer to God. You should give your spouse and all this other stuff. We, we trade in our spouses here. We even within the church. The, the divorce rates are no different than outside of the church. Why? Because we've somehow made the mission of God more important. And I've counseled way too many married people that just have bought into this. One spouse is like, no, no, it's about the mission. We're going to do this. It's about my church. We're going to be here. I'm going to show up here. And one spouse is like, hey, can we just sit around and hang out together? Yeah. Oh, no, we can't waste our time. You see this over and over again. Why? Because they've misplaced the actual who should actually be in charge of this, this universe. Yeah. And so when I talk about disciples, just so we understand what a disciple is, according to what we've understood it to be, is somebody who wants to be with Jesus, somebody who wants to be like Jesus, and then somebody who wants to do what Jesus did. So if you read through the scriptures, what does it look like to, to pattern your life around? What does it look like to spend time with Jesus? What is 90 seconds, 5 minutes, 15 minutes. If you can go 15 minutes and just sit and be with Jesus, awesome. I can't. I'm like 5 minutes tapped. I'm like, alright, God, I was silent for like a few minutes. Now there's things to do, right? But learning how to just sit in the presence of God is crucial. Where your phone is not in your hand. Like, somehow we have to understand this. When we talk about the younger generation, we're just as bad as adults. Like, oh, well, I'm awake. 
my phone should be in my hand. Actually, no, it shouldn't, right? Maybe I'd be a cup of coffee. That's, and don't waste your time with tea, because why? But like, <laughs> just get a cup of coffee, sit in the presence of God. Like, do you really hate yourself that much you want tea in the morning? <laughs> like, so, anyway. So maybe, maybe, maybe you don't have time for five minutes. Maybe you're a little ADD, like, squirrel? Hmm? What? So what if you broke it up into segments? What if you did 90 seconds in the morning? 90 seconds at lunch? 90 seconds in the afternoon, right before you go to bed, 90 seconds. Where you just simply don't talk, you just simply sit there. And you learn to be with God. And you ask God, okay, Jesus, how can I be with you today? Hey, Jesus, when I show up to this workplace, whatever it is, can I just do this with you? Would you mind joining in on my workday? And open my eyes to see what you see here. Because sometimes, like, if you've had a week like this last week, like I've had, you're like, I'm done. <laughs> right? And you come in on the weekend, and you're like, the last thing I want to do is anything with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I've hit my limit, and now all of a sudden, but when you show up and you're like, okay, Jesus, we have to do this with you, yeah. that's a whole different perspective. Right? So when you, when you start thinking about thinking, doing the things like Jesus, we don't, can, like, you're not, and, and some of us aren't married workers, and we have to understand that, right? Like, we stand to wave a magic wand, have the abilities that Jesus did to perform miracles, but can you respond to the people the way that Jesus responded? You do have control of that, right? You know how to do that. So part of that process is learning how to do this and say, okay, I just want to be like you, Jesus. When somebody confronts me, how, to, how did Jesus respond? Well, we should probably read the Gospels to understand that, but, you know, that's part of that process. Yeah. And then to do the things that Jesus did, what is, how did Jesus pattern his life? How did he actually take time to, like, have Sabbath, to go out and have silence and solitude with his, with his father and stuff like that? And so, when we start doing this, we start experiencing life with Jesus. And the mission is important, but it doesn't become the most important thing. God's presence and being with God becomes the most important thing, and that's where our universe starts to circle around. And the byproduct is the mission. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it's not the focal point. Mm -hmm. So, we have to understand this, that Jesus showing up on Christmas is not the, uh, it's not the first time he wants to be with us, right? He, he, if you look at Genesis, God creates the whole thing, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he shows up in the breezy time of the day every day, and then Adam and Eve sin. We don't know how long they were there, maybe a couple hundred days, maybe years, who knows, right? Yeah. Long time to name all the animals, let's put it that way, right? Unless you know how to name all the animals that you don't even know exist yet. Um, so, there's that. I'm assuming a long time. Yeah. And who knows how long I'm not going to get into the science of it, because I don't really care. But somehow, um, somehow, like, there's a, now there's entire civilizations, and there's people around, there's people groups around, and in Exodus, Israel finds himself enslaved for 400 years. God rescues them, right? And he, he draws them out, but he doesn't only just rescue them to be out of slavery, he wants to rescue them to be with him. And so at the end of Exodus, we see him, God set up this tabernacle and this tent of meeting and stuff like that, and the very next book is Leviticus. And Leviticus starts out, in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, says this, that God spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. Meaning that God is in the tent of meeting and Moses is out of the tent of meeting. Because of the sin that Moses has, he can't get into the tent. There's a barrier. So the entire book of Leviticus is setting up a system so that God can be in the presence of his people. And it works. The very next book, Numbers, 
Numbers chapter 1, verse 1 says this. They got spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. Moses is now in this tent with them. From the very beginning, God has wanted to tabernacle with his people. To be among us. Not to be this thing that we just show up every once in a while and say, oh, it's a, it's a festival season, we need to show up here, right? And, and we need to be here once a week. No, he wants to be with us every single day. Amen. And he's not surprised by your sin, by the way. This is, this, is, this is so shocking and disappointing. For 20 years, I've been a pastor. Most of it was in student ministry. I was, 10 years ago, I was in part of the staff of like a high school pastor, middle school pastor, and I was a teaching pastor because I was working full-time at a, at a Toyota company, a manufacturing company. And so I would teach, and then I would teach the people how to teach students, if that makes any sense. Um, and so as a teaching pastor, I would ask questions, hang out with students, and but I was also like the second shift pastor for the church. So like when somebody needed somebody at 2 a.m., I was available because I was like, well, I'm working. So I might as well just meet a few at Denny's or whatever. Yeah. My favorite place in Battle Creek was this place called Sweetwater Donuts. Mm-hmm. Had the best donuts, but it also kept me from like, it helped me get to 300 pounds at one point. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> So, like, you know you have a good donut thing when they leave the grease stains in your chair through the oh, box. Like, that was, yes. Um, so, anyway, back to this actual point of this part of the project. So, I was talking with our students, and they're doing high school, and I said, and I asked the question, I would ask questions of this all the time. Hey, what do you think God feels like when you sin? Have you ever thought about what does God actually feel towards you, what's his thought towards you, anything like that? And I would say for the majority of my 20 years now, 10 years at the point, or at that point, majority of the students of the people that I talk to would say disappointed. And I went back to our teaching, pastor staff, pastoral staff, and I was like, here's the deal. I'm sick and tired of this teaching the Bible. Because God is not disappointed in our sin. It wasn't because God's disappointment that he sent Jesus to this earth. God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus. Your sin, my sin, doesn't shock him. God still loves us, even in our sin. So how can we have 85% of our church people grow up and get the answer wrong? We're misteaching the Bible. And this is why we teach the Bible. So we actually understand what it says. Is he disappointed? Yes, but his actual, like, his foundational thing is love. Yeah. Parents, we know this. We still love our kids when they screw things up. Are we disappointed in their actions? Yeah. Do we stay there? No. We move on from it. So it's a foundational moment. We need to get to this point. It's not the mission of God. When we put that in there, it's like all moralistic, all the behavior down and all this other stuff. God's still foundational level of everything that he has for us and towards us is because of his love. That he has for us. And this is why he tabernacles, and this is why he gets into it. So now let's get into the Christian story. That was all the precursor of the sermon, okay? So there you go. Let's set the stage, and now let's get into the actual Christmas event, because here's the deal. God, at the fullness of time, Galatians says, God sent his son because he loves us. So in this moment, we talked about this last week, that the shepherds who are in the fields at night, which that's the key indicator right here of the timeline of when Jesus would have been born. And I don't mean to burst your bubbles and, and all this, but it wasn't December 25th. All right? 
So, shocker of all shockers, but there's two seasons in, in Israel. There's a rainy season and a dry season. So, I think October to October. So, October to May is the rainy season. You have early rains and soften the ground, and then they can plant the ground. And then the later rains kind of set the harvest field and stuff like that for the grains and stuff like that. If you're, if you're a farmer and you have crops in the field, do you want a lot of sheep in your field? Not really. They're going to destroy it, right? So this, the, the, the farmers would have their, their flocks outside of the fields at that point, right? So from May to October, that's when they're like, please go into the fields. It's dry season. They're not going to be crops in the field and all this. And these are, these are uh, agricultural people who rely on crops. So thinking, and Bethlehem itself is known for its bread. So wheat, barley, oats, and all that. It's the house of bread in there. So as they're sitting there, like these fields are crucial to them. They're known for their bread. They're known for their hearts and breads, right? So in the dry season is when the, the fields or the, 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 the sheep would be in the fields. Field sheep do a couple things in the fields. They soften, they break up the ground as they walk on it. But then they also leave the necessary fertilizer. Use your imagination, okay? So that's what they're doing in there. So when the, when the shepherds have their field, their, shop, their, their, their flocks in the fields at night, they're not Bedouin. I don't think they're Bedouin uh, shepherds. I think they're village shepherds who are going semi around, like a probably a twenty mile radius, hanging out, letting their, their sheep hang in, hang, hang in there. And and this is maybe another verse came in the Bible. I told Heather this, and she didn't like it. But the star is nowhere to be near. Like there's not a shining star pointing down to the manger. The star is only for the for the magi. The magi follow the star. The shepherds do not. The shepherds were given two signs. Find the baby wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. So find the baby in cloths. Cool, great. You know, that's not abnormal. In a manger, would have been abnormal. Does that make sense? The shepherds have no gift to offer. We talked about this last week. This is where we ended last week. Where the shepherds show up and all they can do is worship, worship the baby. You and I should probably learn to take the, 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 the posture of the shepherds. Your gifts are not that important, God. Are the time, talent, treasure? Absolutely. But you try to impress God with how good you are? You're not. Just show up and worship Him. And just be in His presence. And be amazed at God in a baby form. As simple as that is. In moments. And so you just sit there and you sit there and wonder about this. Now, the major part of this, that's where it gets a little weird. Now, I don't know if you've been driving through, like, especially in uh, St. John area, you see nativity scenes all over the place, right? And Heather's like, there has to be a competition. Probably, who knows? I don't know. Like, but you see like 200 of them all throughout the community. Whatever. They're inaccurate, but they're there, right? So, um, there's that part. So, like I said, there's not a lot of wood in, um, in Israel, so it's mainly stones, stuff like that, and caves, Think stone hedges and stuff like that, not wooden nativities. And so, uh, the way that households would, would set up was they would actually find a cave first, and they would put their animals in this cave, and then the humans would stay in tents outside, but you put the animals in the cave to get them out of the elements, keep them from uh, protection at night, stuff like that, and then the household would actually be built around this. We do the same thing. We think about like attached garages. That's the manger. The animals are part of the household, they're just not in the household. Yeah. Your garage is part of your household, but it's not in your household. 
So when we talk about Jesus being born because there's no room in the inn, well, there's just no room in the household anymore. So in order to keep ceremony and clean and stuff like that, they put him in the, in the manger because that's where there's room. Why? Because they're animals out in the fields at night. So think more, more like think June, July area. That's probably when Jesus was born based on this timeline. And he's not isolated, some like kicked out, like, oh, get away from us or go to the barn. No, just go to the garage and have your baby there, right? Would you want somebody to have your baby on your couch or on your bed? Or would be like, okay, let's get a kiddie pool, right? Because that's what the hipsters do now. So, um, <laughs> anyway, so that's the shepherds, right? And then we get to Luke chapter 2, verse 2, where the Magi show up. In order to understand the Magi, you have to let me nerd out on history for a minute. And then we'll see if this is explosive for you or not. So, Herod the Great, when he's 25 years old, he's given by Julius Caesar, given the title Governor of Galilee. And so, the Governor of Galilee is there. He's on the very front edge of the Roman Empire, the, the uh, eastern part of the empire. And so, in my opinion, the Magi don't come from the southeast, they come from the east. If it was from the southeast, they would have said, Southeast. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, uh, you want to put up the first map, Tom? So, you see here uh, the Arabia and Dubai and stuff like that. Uh, that's people have speculated maybe they came from there, but in my opinion, that's more south than just east. Parthians from the east. Now, the Parthians and the Romans are just like, think, think in the Cold War days, USA and Soviet Union hated each other constantly. And they constantly fought over Israel, the land of Israel. The land of Israel is so crucial to the ancient world that it was a hinge point in it that it connected three continents. In a day and age where like you walked everywhere, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Europe, Asia, Africa, it's the hinge point. It's where everyone travels through. And so uh, the, the, a few years after, after Herod, Herod gets his title governor of Galilee, Julius Caesar is assassinated. The Parthians see this as a way to kind of like conquer this area again. And so they do this. They, they sponsor a Jewish-led revolt, and they give them the weapons and stuff like that. And they give them backing. Uh, Herod the Great flees and barely gets out of Israel with his life. Like, he's almost overtaken. He can see the chariots of the, of the enemy. Does that make sense? Yeah. He gets to Rome, and he gives the report. Hey, it's, it's sponsored by the Parthians, blah, blah, blah. The Senate look at this, and they're like, hey, this is actually a great opportunity for us. We could put a buffer in here. So what they do is they elevate him from governor to the king of the Jews. Now, the ironic thing is he's not Jewish at all. He's, his father was an Edomite. His mother's an Abitian. There's no Jewish heritage at all. But he's the king of the Jews. And if that's shocking to you, David has half of his lineage. He's not Jewish either, so it is what it is. So anyway, um, so here we are. And he, he's had this new kingdom-type title. And the Senate, the Roman Senate, look at this as like, hey, we can create this buffer so that if they do overcome this, at least it's not the Roman soldiers, it'll be Herod's soldiers that are killed. This will buy us some time to get our armies ready to defend the, the, the border. So, Herod the Great spends four years pushing back the Parthians. Four years of literally taking ground after ground. And if you, like, when I was there in Israel, you literally could see the mountain ridges that he would step over, basically, and conquer through. And he went mountain ridge by mountain ridge. That's how long it took for him to get there. So he builds up Masada. He builds up all these other places, Herodium, so that he can have these fortresses to defend. 
throughout the whole area. Think about the size of New Jersey, and it took him four years to conquer. Wow. That's the kind of terrain. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so he's pushing them back, and now he's settled, and now he starts building things, and it's peaceful, it's fun. He's just taxing everybody by 85%, maybe somewhere in there, but it's peace, peaceful for him, right? He's loving life. And then all of a sudden, the Magi from the East show up. Magi from the Parthian Empire show up. Is he walking them? Not really. And they don't just show up at three of them. There's not three of them. We don't know how many there are. Some people speculate the 70 with a small little army, right? So politically speaking, it's shocking. Spiritually speaking, it's even shocking as well. And here's what I mean. In the biblical literature, anytime somebody moved away from God, they moved to the east. Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, God kicks them out and he puts them east of Eden. Cain and Abel show up. Cain kills them, and he moves, he moves uh, Cain goes east to, towards the land of Nod, east of there. Tower of Babel, which is uh, Genesis chapter 11. The, the humans move eastward to the plains of Shinar, or Sinar, whatever. Um, but they're there, right? And then you have Abraham and Lot. Abraham goes to the west, and Lot chooses east towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Script, like, spiritually speaking, scripturally speaking, anytime somebody moves to the east, they're moving, or they're moving away from God. Mm-hmm. And then back the Babylonian exile, what direction does Babylon from Israel? To the east. Spiritually speaking, people who are far from God are now showing up to worship Jesus. Wow. So let's put this together. Let's put a bow on it, okay? I don't know about you, but for some, some of us, we may be showing up to this Christmas season, and we just feel like we want to be over God. We're done with him. Because mm-hmm. God hasn't performed what we wanted to. Our life is in a situation where we just, it's not turning out to be, so we're just going to take our matters in our own hands. And God will let you. He's polite like that. But you're going to miss out on it. If you feel like you can make the mission of God the most important thing, he'll let you. But you're going to bring yourself out and probably ruin the trajectory of your family for generations to come. And you'll miss out on the presence of God. Some of us, we may show up here and we are so desperate to find God that we've been so far away from him, spiritually speaking. And we think that we have to clean ourselves up to get to God. And God's like, no, just come to me. Yeah. It's a couple years later that the Magi show up. And just they just show up and they worship God. They have gifts to offer him. Like, we're talking expensive gifts. Like, Bitcoin-level gifts, right? Like, amazing levels of, of, of value here. And they just show up and they say, we just want to worship the true king of, king of the Jews. And he throws all of Jerusalem into an uproar. And here's the deal. For some of us, we just need to learn how to just simply be in the presence of God. And what we have to offer him is just our presence. And we lay down everything to him, right? And we just simply say, God, I don't know what you have in store for me, but I just want to worship you. Annalise and Russell are going to come up and they're going to lead us in a chorus. And I just want you just to be your prayer, that you would allow God to just simply rest over you this week. As we head into the Christmas season, I hope prayer is that it's not a time of chaos, that it's a time of rest, that even in the, in, the, in the stillness that we can simply find ourselves in the presence of God, no matter where you find yourself in that preposition scale, whatever that is, 
over under far for from if you intentionally moved away from God my prayer is that you could find yourself taking steps back towards him because that's what he's here for let's pray God thank you for who you are thanks for everything you've done for us that at the fullness of time you stepped out of heaven You didn't wait for us to get good enough or clean enough or smart enough or anything like that. And that you were not born in a palace but in a common space. And the first group of people to see you were despised as the shepherds. And they had nothing but their worship and Jesus, we come in that same posture. We have nothing to offer but our worship 